Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One because we're the podcast that Formula One deserves but not the one it needs right now or something like that. How about uh, working a little Batman reference into to Formula One? Hey, Mark, it's Monday night. We're here just to kind of hang out, go over some of the news that uh, has broken over the past couple of days, go over all the massive amounts of uh, emails, and I may, just may, have a Kimi Raikkonen haiku or two to read out uh, during. <laughs> of course I do. Kimi's book of haiku. Yeah, well, we'll read out one of those because that uh, ties in nicely to one of the questions in the mailbag. But hey, I don't know what's up with the weather around here. I mean, as uh, people who live in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, I think it's part of our prerogative to complain about the weather just because our weather sucks most of the time because we get, I think, about 400 days of rain per year. But I swear to God, I woke up uh, yesterday morning and it was mid-October. I, I have no idea. It went from spring, skipped over summer and went straight on into fall. So it's uh, extremely kind of depressing. But uh, how's how's your day been? Your, how's your week started off? You you have that, that, that look that uh, shoot me and uh, put me out of my misery look. Yeah, getting there. Part of it is just kind of the emotional distaste with this weather we've been having. But I can't complain too much because, you know, I think historically we have generally kind of cool, wet summers in Vancouver. But I think what we experienced in 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18 was we had these like bone dry four month summers and we were fighting forest fires and the city was enveloped in smoke. So I guess it's one extreme or the other, but I'd I'd really like to have something in the middle. I look at the forecast. It looks like it's going to be better, which is a good news story. But one thing that kind of helps pull me through this depressing, cloudy, wet, moisture ridden Vancouver weather is the fact that we have a triple header coming up. We have F1 Grand Prix on the next three weekends, which is incredible. And and it's funny too, because I posted something on Twitter last night, which is a little bit tongue in cheek, but hey guys, you know what? It's the French Grand Prix, but any Grand Prix is better than no Grand Prix. And one of our listeners quickly hit back and said, hey, well, (laughs) it might not be the best Grand Prix on the calendar, but we have a really kind of exciting competitive uh, championship right now, which is something we haven't been able to say for a long time. So regardless of how boring the track might be, it should be an entertaining race just because there's something at stake, which is very, very true. Yeah, exactly. And you, you make a great point. It is maybe not the most, uh, exciting track uh, based on what we've seen over the past uh, couple of years but uh, who knows maybe this is the year that we buck the trend uh, you know I, i'm being a little bit uh, glasses half full <laughs> on that statement but uh, yeah i mean th- there's been some moments but i mean the one thing that i think we're guaranteed is that uh, the, the first five or six laps will probably be fairly hectic and uh, eventful based on recent history but let's hope it turns out to, to be a, a little bit more uh, exciting that than that but i mean we shouldn't diss it too much because we do still want people to listen to the show on Thursday night and uh, so we, we should not uh, maybe throw too much shade at uh, Circuit Paul Ricard uh, too much hey but before we get into things uh, too much I just I've got a big list of shout outs uh, that I want to to give to our awesome F1 family here a uh, bunch of you have left uh, reviews on Apple Podcasts uh, recently you don't need to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to get a shout out uh, I mean you can send us an email or tweet us but I've been a little bit remiss in uh, not uh, not doing this um, earlier. So uh, first of all, uh, shout outs to Josh Dunlap, John Knus, True88, hashtag WWE Trivia TO, Vintage Viewport, Brian McCarthy, D Chandler 222, JJ Spacely checking in from the, uh, the I, what was that, the Jetsons? Mr. Spacely's from the Jetsons, right? Uh, 
<laughs> hey, I like vintage cartoons. What can I say? Counselor NY, uh, S J R M E Y, Simi Sam, I think it is. I can't read my own writing here. Mrs. Sam T and Michael McGivel, uh, McGivel Ray. Pardon me. <laughs> I should be able to do the, the Irish names at least. Pardon me about that, Michael. Anyways, and also uh, we have a nice uh, email here from Troy in Abbotsford, who's only about to half an hour, 45 minutes uh, down the road. Just uh, wanted to, to check in and uh, and say hi. Say so he's a, a local listener, been listening for about a month and just want to let us know that we're not alone here in the lower mainland in being uh, Formula One fans. I'm just kind of wondering, though, I mean, for those of you that are local to Vancouver and we're big fans of TSN 1040 slash Team 1040. Could this possibly be a return of Troy and White Rock? Maybe not. But, uh, you know, there were some legendary listeners in the Team 1040 days, the pauser, Troy and Ro- uh, White Rock. But uh, the pauser goes back to Rock 101 with Dan Russell. It doesn't really go. Does he go back that far? Oh, oh my yeah. gosh. <laughs> yeah. All the deserving uh, people that need to go into the BC Sports uh, Hall of Fame. It's just so, okay, now that we've alienated everyone that doesn't live in Vancouver now. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll we'll, we'll try to uh, switch up gears here, and uh, you know, pun intended, and uh, get into where would you want to go first? You want to go into into the email? I know you've got a pile of tweets uh, that uh, that you wanted to talk about. Uh, where where do you want to start first? I mean, we could uh, go to JJ in Houston. He wanted to talk about um, Kimi Raikkonen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's do H Town. Let's give. Texas, some love. I always talk about how much I love Texas. Let's go to yeah. Houston. Well, especially because uh, you know JJ sent us this email like two weeks ago. We kind of put it off, put it off, put it <laughs> off. And this is a, I know, I know. You know JJ's uh, you know a real trooper for hanging in there for my uh, procrastination. So apologies uh, from that. Anyways, uh, JJ, this is a long one, but it's uh, really good. So he's Kimi Raikkonen is one of the most interesting athletes in any sport, as far as I'm aware. The Iceman has a world championship and he has little left to prove in, uh, after racing in F1 for close to 20 years, yet he is still driving currently for a non-dominant team out of his love for the sport. I understand that he brings stability to Alfa Romeo's driver lineup and maintains a diehard fan base despite making historic U.S. President Calvin Silent Cal Coolidge look a dynamic extrovert in comparison. Love that Calvin Coolidge uh, reference, by the way, JJ. My question, in your opinion, do you believe Alfa Romeo's making a good choice for itself by keeping Kimi on their team or should Alfa Romeo usher a rookie into that uh, F1 uh, into F1 via that seat or is there someone else on the F1 grid currently who might suit uh, Kimmy's seats um, I have a few other thoughts about Kimmy too I don't think we'll ever see uh, a driver or athlete of any kind uh, again like him and in day and age where self-expression uh, is uh, is among modern society's most prioritized values i.e. social media is one obvious example Kimmy represents the last of his generation of drivers that did not have to keep up uh, a non-stop barrage of appearances when off the track the brilliant paradox of Kimmy's beloved image in F1 culture is that there is hardly any image at all totally agree with that he is a mysterious figure who only speaks to the few F1 reporters he tolerates during the race, his race engineers on the radio. Though I don't root for him often, my favorite thing about Kimi is seeing how much his fans go bananas for him. Despite being in a sport where he's surrounded by larger-than-life personalities, adoring fans are fascinated by and enamored with the soft-spoken demeanor emanating from his unshading, stone-like visage. 
Kimmy is one of a kind. Still living, uh, listening to and loving the show. Thanks for all the great work that you guys do. Take care, JJ in Houston. So awesome one. You know, just I, I want to tell you one of like my favorite uh, Kimmy uh, anecdotes or stories. And this isn't a, a new one, but I can't remember what year it was. But it was after the Brazilian Grand Prix. And I think they had Pele or somebody there to do the, the podium uh, <laughs> presentation. And Kimmy sort of like appears, I guess, somewhere in the paddock. And I guess the uh, the pit lane reporter wanted to get uh, his, uh, you know, his take on things. Yeah, it was Martin Brundle. And he asked uh, Kimmy, he said, oh, were you here to see uh, Pele? He said, no, I was in there taking, uh, well, let's just say he was uh, taking a deuce. And (laughs) he he said it a little bit more colorfully than that, but... uh, Kimmy, obviously not impressed by uh, you know world soccer superstar Pele presenting the trophies in Brazil that year, but uh, you know the thing is, I mean, the way that I tell it is not funny because the way that you know if you can sort of picture Kimmy saying that and the lack of expression and emotion in his voice and the fact that he's thoroughly unimpressed, <laughs> it just kind of makes it uh, kind of funny. I mean, sure, look it up on YouTube. I'm sure it's uh, there. Anyways. Back to JJ's email. Where, to, um, where do you want to start with that? Uh, I mean, I think we've moved on from the Calvin Coolidge uh, reference there. I've got a couple of thoughts on uh, whether or not uh, they should, uh, you know, maybe cut ties with him. But I would think that the like the obvious choice or maybe the obvious successor is that uh, if they're still doing some sort of development in that team or trying to build a, a little bit more stability, just like uh, JJ says, I think that Kimmy is that guy. But I think the logical successor to that seat would have to be Mick Schumacher. Uh, I think just because, you know, He's a Ferrari Academy driver, Haas, Alfa Romeo, all part of the Ferrari family. And, uh, you know, it would be a big step for Mick to go from Haas to Ferrari without some sort of intermediate step, considering he is a very young, very raw talent. And he obviously would need a little bit more time to develop and uh, and marinate a little bit in Formula One and soak it up. Because, I mean, he's still really, really young. And the thing is, obviously, they have a, a very solid driver partnership at Ferrari at the moment with Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz, who I think is, you know, I think he's making a strong case to be one of the, I think, the dark horses, maybe one of the unsung hero of the season thus far through the first quarter of the season. But I think for me, that's uh, that, that would be the natural progression. That that the natural replacement for Kimmy, and I think the the, the problem is right now is that uh, that if they push Kimmy out too soon, who would you replace him with? I mean, Mick, I, I think it's it's pretty obvious to say would not be ready to even make that step from Haas to Alfa Romeo. And uh, I think he might need another year at Haas to, to, to move up. And then I guess, uh, you know, with the ultimate goal, if it works out that way to one of these days, move him up and put him in one of the uh, the fancy pretty red cars. Yeah, I, I like this question because I think the the listener, JJ in H-Town, is absolutely right. Kimmy's probably one of the most unique personalities on the grid. And to provide some context, this guy's been on the grid for a long time. He entered Formula One in 2001. And I posted, and it's funny because I posted a tweet about this the other day. Just think about what you were doing in 2001 and where <laughs> you were. And this guy was in Formula One 20 years ago. It's it's crazy. He's had a tremendous run. He, he was out of the sport for a couple of years, around 2010, 2011. He finished, I, I think if you flash back, his third full year in the in the championship with uh, with uh, McLaren, he finished second in the championship. He finished second in 2005. Like, like you said, he won the championship in 07. He finished third in 2008. He left the championship, came back 
in a bit of a shock move, he joined the recently renamed Renault team, the, the Lotus team. So Renault had actually left the sport. They continued to produce power units. Obviously, Red Bull were buying them, but mm -hmm. as a factory team, they were gone. He came back, and, and I still think that those Lotus years were some of the most interesting uh, of, his, uh, of his career. He was hugely successful with a car that I don't think anyone had any expectations was going to be competitive. He finished third in 2012, his first year back in the championship. He won a race. He had a handful of podiums. And to put into context too, just because I think it's really good for our listeners, he is now racing 340 Grand Prix. He has 103 podiums. So he scored a podium in almost a third of all of his his races um and he has 21 race wins he's he's a terrific racer he loves formula one he loves the competitive nature of the sport um to your point too it's it's kind of interesting and i've never been able to kind of reconcile myself to his personality because that term you used iceman mm -hmm. it really comes from the fact that he is so i don't know if i want to say abrasive i can say abrasive like he's abrasive with the media he's short with the media he's very economical with the words that he uses and if he can respond to a long convoluted question from an f1 journalist in a single word he will yeah and he gets away with it because he's the ice man and because he has a world championship so so be it i think some of the stories about him are hilarious and i wasn't sure which story you were going to share but uh there's another story that there's plenty of them yeah oh my gosh i was reading another <laughs> one today did you know allegedly and this is based on a biography that i haven't read in full but in 2008 he was arrested in singapore because he thought it would be funny to climb into the baggage scanner at the airport and get a body <laughs> scan through the x-ray machine this once drunk for 16 consecutive days between Grand Prix <laughs> during a championship. This is a guy who showed up for the FIA awards show at the end of 2018, completely drunk on stage. Like he's got a bit of a, I don't give a F attitude, which is, which is kind of cool. Now to answer JJ's question, one, he made this comment and I wrote it down here because I don't necessarily agree with it. And maybe it's true, but he made that comment that, Hey, he's racing uh, for the love of the sport. Well, he's racing for the love of the sport, but also because Alfa Romeo is paying him $10 million a year. And it's also generally understood that that money is coming from Ferrari. Ultimately, he's, he's valuable to Alfa Romeo, not necessarily because of what he can do on the track, but what he can do to, for that team from a sponsorship perspective. And I've talked about this so many times. One of the core channels of revenue for these teams is sponsorship, the decals that go on the side of the car. And it's so much easier to go and knock on the door of Mr. Corporation and ask for dollars if you can sell them on a picture of Kimi Raikkonen standing next to a car with your logo on it. It makes it easier. So oftentimes, teams will hold on to older world champions because of that. Now, that said, I totally agree with you in that it should ultimately be Mick Schumacher who's in that team. I worry about how dysfunctional and broken the Haas team might be mm -hmm. financially, organizationally, structurally. I worry about his development there. I'm probably a little less concerned than you are about getting him to Alfa Romeo because I don't think it's that significant of a jump. But ultimately, I think for me, I would be more interested in questioning the role of Antonio Giovinazzi on that team. Again, he, he's improved and he seems to be a capable driver, great guy, he's done some great sim work, great test driver, things like that. Yeah. But maybe a team with MSC and Kimi Raikkonen. But then again, part of it too is I think sometimes it's valuable to have an older, more experienced driver on a team with a younger driver because they can share data, they can share telemetry. I don't know how collaborative Kimi would be with a younger driver or if he would be collaborative at all. But I, I do agree that at some point, you, you got to move on. But I think as long as he adds value to that team in terms of sponsorship and revenues, he's probably not going anywhere. And I don't think there's a whole lot of pressure on Alfa Romeo to make that Michael Schumacher switch yet. 
Yeah. I think I answered the question. I think so. Hey, before we uh, wrap this one up and we go into our first break here, I'm just going to read here from uh, Kimmy's book of haiku. And this one is called Normal. If we all feel normal, then all of my friends are also not normal. There you go. Haikus allegedly written by Kimmy. It's 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 a funny book. I mean, you got to take it with a p- bit of a pinch of salt. Anyways, time for a break. When we come back, we're going to go to your tweets and we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We will be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, well, welcome back to the show, Mark. Over to you now. Uh, you're the, uh, the 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 controller, the master and commander of the Twitters. I know you've uh, got a whole b- bunch here. And again, guys, thank you for all the questions. Thank you for all the tweets. We don't really have enough time to to read them all. We could literally do a show like this uh, each and every night of the week. So I know that you picked out uh, a couple that really stood out uh, that you wanted to. Like, I mean, you've been dying to talk about some of them, and I know you're itching to get go. So where are we going now? What, what's the next topic on the uh, the agenda? Mark. So I'm going to share a couple that we're not going to get to. So this is going to okay. sound super cool. Um, Ad <laughs> had a fantastic question this morning about the fact that Ferrari looks to be changing up their engine uh, formula for next season. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great question. Something we'll probably hit on an upcoming show because I want a little bit more time to research that and get a sense yep. of what's happening at the factory because it's not super clear yet. Um, Zachary has a great question about what the nature of having back-to-back races at the Red Bull Ring will look like. I think we'll talk about that one as we get a little bit closer to that race. Um, and there's a couple of other really good questions here, but the one I want to dig into, and this is, and honestly, it's, it's almost embarrassing that you and I haven't talked about this, but, um, Michael Boverhoff had, and I, again, apologies. I, I am just known now for butchering people's names. So please DM me <laughs> and, and clean me up for this. But he made a great <laughs> question about the fact that, Hey, look, Mercedes aren't rocking their DAS system this year. Is this having any impact on their performance? And I'll be very honest. We've reached out to Tim Haraney, who is the analyst for TSN up here in Canada. He's a former race car driver. He does a whole bunch of promotional work with F1. He has relationships with all the drivers, blah, blah, blah. So I basically posed the question to him. It's like, from your perspective, given the fact that you've raced open wheel race cars at the highest imaginable levels, is this having an impact? And on what part of the race? Like, is this an issue in the straights? Is this a detriment in the corners? His answer was basically, yes, it's having an impact. And it's having an impact everywhere on the track. So to back this up a little bit, back at the beginning of 2020, so during winter testing, uh, Mercedes were out in winter testing, rocking their new car, the W11, and some kind of eagle-eyed viewers had noticed something from the in-car footage that was being shown on TV. And what was being shown on TV is that Valtteri and Lewis would be in the car with the steering wheel in their hands, and at certain moments, 
they would pull that steering wheel towards them, almost like they were pulling it off the rack. And people freaked out because they didn't know what was happening. And what Mercedes had developed during the off-season is something that they were calling the dual-axis steering system, the DAS system. And what it enabled them to do was adjust the toe of the front tires. Now, to give a little bit of uh, context, um, all cars have some degree of toe. So toe is basically a reference or the measurement of the direction of the tires when they're mounted on the front of the car and the steering wheel is straight. So if you have zero-degree toe and your steering wheel is pointed forward, the two front wheels are pointed directly forward. And that's conventional for a road car. It's mm-hmm. good because you get even wear on the tire because if your toe is off, for instance, let's say you hit a pothole really bad and one of the toe gets thrown out on the right tire, you're going to get uneven wear. That wear The tire is going to tug a little bit. So ultimately in a road car, those two front tires should be pointed straight forward. Now in Formula One over the years, the engineers have discovered that it actually is a little bit helpful to have a little bit of negative toe on those front tires. So they're actually splayed out a little bit. So it's very, very difficult to notice. But what engineers have discovered is that, hey, look, if we put a little bit of negative toe on those tires, so your left front tire and your right front tire actually point outwards a little bit. So it looks odd from the top down. It actually provides some benefits in cornering. Now, the negative side of that is you get uneven wear, the, the tire doesn't warm evenly across the uh, the entire compound and those kind of pieces. Um, you get uneven tire degradation, but ultimately all of these things are worthwhile because you get this better cornering ability. Now, what Mercedes had designed was a system that when you're driving straight and they pulled that steering wheel towards you, those two front tires went from a negative toe to a zero degree toe. So they actually straighten themselves out. So in a straight line, that's really beneficial because you get less drag you get less tire degradation, you get even tire degradation, and the tires warm more uniformly. So when you do hit a corner, you're going to get better grip. So everyone in the sport freaked out. Uh, Red Bull at the very first race protested this, and they were all protesting this based on the premise that this was a suspension change. So Formula One is incredibly strict about suspension. They are all about static suspensions. You cannot have electronic dampening. You cannot have driver controllable separate, uh, uh, suspension. You cannot not have an airbag. You can have nothing. It's got to be a purely static suspension. So Red Bull and all these teams were protesting based on the premise that, wait a minute, that is a driver aid for the suspension. The FIA came back and they're like, actually, you know what? Based on our technical observations, this is a steering enhancement, which isn't prohibited by the rule books. Now, it became known very, very quickly that it was going to be prohibited for 2021. So it was kind of a one-year one year kind of show, but it was presumably quite beneficial. So this year, Mercedes had to come back without the benefit of this DAS steering system. And it's not clear what it was adding to the car in terms of lap time. Is it a tenth of a second, two tenths of a second, where it was really beneficial? We know it made the cars faster in the straight. We know that because the tire degradation was less, cornering ability should have been better. We know that because the tires were warming uniformly, you probably should have had better grip most of the corners, like blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, they don't have this system this year. That's the point. So the question was, is this having an impact on Mercedes? And the answer is, Probably, yeah, because ultimately they weren't able to substitute this with a different system. So they had this really cool driver aid in a sense last year. That's maybe not a driver aid, but this mechanical aid last year. 
and it's gone. So there's no doubt that this is having some impact on the performance of the car, especially when you index it against the fact that Red Bull comes back with such a, a powerful package. And again, this isn't just me speaking. Like I said, I went to Tim Haraney, uh, the TSN analyst up here in Canada, and he specifically said, absolutely, it is certainly having an impact on the car in all aspects of their performance. Straight line, because they're, they've got more drag, because the wheels are splayed out. It's having more impact in the corners because they have less mechanical grip, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, great question. And, and hopefully that helps provide a little bit of context for everyone in terms of what DAS did last year for Mercedes. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, when that first came out, really caught everybody uh, by surprise way back pre-pandemic. I mean, it's hard to kind of remember back to those days. But the first thing that really kind of uh, struck me about it was just the whole, you know, we could see the two drivers pulling and pushing on the steering wheel. But the immediate uh, comparison I drew was back to the early mid-90s with the active suspension that uh, Williams had uh, developed for the FW14B. Now, just in real brief, this was like an automatic suspension uh, system that they had that basically would adjust the, uh, you know, take into effect what was happening to the car on the track and just set that optimal ride height and uh, and clearance off of the road. I mean, it was ultimately banned because uh, I think one of the concerns was that it, there was a really huge increase in the speed as these cars went uh, through the corners. But that was actually, yeah, there, there was, it, it was something that was... Um, it wasn't new. It was something that was actually pioneered by Lotus back in the mid 1980s, and they did some work with it. But it was uh, Williams that uh, you know, picked it up and ran with it. And the in the days when Williams were the Mercedes of Formula One, uh, they weren't as dominant, but they were one of the best teams in the 80s and, and 90s. So that that was my initial uh, you know uh, reaction to it. But it's it's interesting to the um, like the whole DAS system, and maybe it's just because it was made known pretty quick that it wouldn't be um it, it wouldn't be uh, permitted in 2021 but it was just the fact that uh, it, it was so avant-garde and nobody else thought to do it besides uh, Mercedes and then i guess maybe it's just because that uh, it got banned for 2021 so quickly was the fact that nobody else tried to to, to copy it it was just like okay, this thing's only going to be around for a little while so why should we sink all this uh, time and money and effort into something that we're just going to develop for, you know, eight or 10 races or however long it is that, uh, that we're going to be able to run this thing. But uh, interesting. And I, the only thing I'll add to that as well is this has historically been the benefit of being a team like Mercedes. Like let's not mm-hmm. kid ourselves. A, a system like that would have cost tens of millions of dollars to develop and test in total secrecy. And yeah. this is just one of those innovations that actually makes it to the car. Like, Think about all the things that they develop and test that we never even hear about because mm-hmm. maybe they don't add the advantage. Maybe they're too clearly a violation of the technical regulations, blah, 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 blah. But this is one of those things that will eventually be, we will see less of this innovation, partly because of the cost cap. And I think we're already starting to see this, but also because the formula and the technical regulations are going to be so much tighter. Teams and engineers just won't have the creative license to develop technical innovations like this because they're going to try and kind of parse down that level of it well you can because this type of innovation is going to be is going to be less common and maybe that's okay because if the racing's better and we have racing in formula one like we did last weekend in indy shout mm-hmm. out to kevin magnuson for the race win on saturday unbelievable um then all the better for the sport yeah yeah absolutely hey you know um the one thing that uh, i think that we need to give a bit of a shout out is to uh mercedes operational security i mean talk about being airtight i mean uh, not a i mean this caught everybody by surprise when uh, when it was first uh you know it came to everybody's attention back 
in Barcelona in 2020. I mean, that is uh, phenomenal that not uh, a whiff of this leaked out of uh, Mercedes. I mean, that is, you know, phenomenal. I mean, talk about uh, (laughs) keeping things tightly under wraps. I mean, that, that was impressive. Totally. And I think one of the things that a lot of our our North American viewers are really surprised by is when they see the drivers in Park Ferme or they see the drivers walking past the car of another team, they always peek in the cockpit. They'll look under the side. They'll look at the back. They have photographers positioned all around the track during winter testing because what the other teams are bringing are often a total surprise. And they want to know as early as possible, like what innovations, what are they doing with their floor, their barge boards, their side pods? What does their exhaust look like? Their rear diffuser, their rear wing, because they've had this creative license to get really innovative in those spaces. So teams are really secretive. And I think you and I've talked about this in the past that historically in winter testing, when the cars weren't on the track, they would bring them into the garage, the pit garage, and they put up huge screens. So the other teams and the cameras couldn't see what was happening in the garage. And Formula One's done away with that now. They're like, no, no, no. We want people on TV to see what's happening. But yeah, it speaks to the secrecy of the sport. But totally, kudos to, to Mercedes for keeping something like that under wraps. Yeah, absolutely. And just a uh, uh, Falco Fire weighing in on the live chat on YouTube. And the, uh, the the comment or the question is, is F1 a continuous cat and mouse game of rule breaking and regulation? Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I mean, they, that's why we all love it. Yeah. That's why we absolutely love it. Yeah, it could be because uh, they... Uh, are constantly uh, trying to see what they can get away with and trying to bend uh, the, the rules and regulations 100% uh, to their uh, their own uh, <laughs> their, their advantage. All right, awesome uh, question. Uh, what's up uh, for, for next? Uh, you know what? Just a quick question that I noticed that just hit up in our feed as well, because this is actually a question we get all the time. And it's, sure. and it's funny, man, because I think we probably address, and I'm cool to address it a thousand times, but sure. the question of F1 apparel. Um, so Tasimba in the live chat asks, random questions. Why is F1 apparel apparel so expensive compared to other sports? <laughs> oh, I mean, shocking. Moment, I have to decide between a jacket for me and the missus or a <laughs> PlayStation 5. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's a pretty stark, uh, you know, you know, co- comparison right there. It's just like, <laughs> do I need some, uh, you know, so, some F1 merch or do I need a PS5? I mean, if you can get your hands on one, of course, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just absolutely shocking how much the, uh, you know, it, the, the F1 stuff is, I mean, it's, it's basically, my collection is basically limited to hats and they're, you know, they're, they're expensive enough. I mean, great question. Yeah. And honestly, I don't, I don't think either of us had the answer. We're going to do a really great show during the summer break. And we're going to talk a lot about F1 merchandise and F1 sponsorship and F1 branding with, mm-hmm. uh, with Mr. Landino, um, which I think we'll probably tease a little bit more coming up, but I think it ultimately just comes down to the fact that teams manage their apparel independently of f1 so typically if you look at north american sports whether it's the nfl or major league baseball or the nba the league negotiates apparel deals independent of the the actual teams so the league will uh will negotiate independently of the teams with nike or majestic or historically majestic major league baseball now nike as well but they'll negotiate on behalf of the teams and they'll strike a um an apparel deal with all these different providers um collaboratively in f1 the teams manage the apparel themselves so they find their own suppliers they find their own sponsors um so some teams might have puma or umbro or in the past a hugo boss or whatever the case may be so they have complete complete license to do whatever they want which also means they get to price it however they want Mm -hmm. you see these real price discrepancies and i think it just comes down to the fact that unfortunately they can charge that much because they're selling it 
if yeah. they weren't selling it, they would charge less. That said, in my experience, some of the stuff that I bought has been from a quality perspective, really good. Like I bought a black Mercedes t-shirt in 2016. It still looks brand new. It's heavy cotton. It looks fantastic. It wears fantastic. So some of the stuff is good, but it's still really tough to swallow 60 or $80. But then again, I'm saying that and I've spent $300 on an authentic NBA jersey. So who am I to talk? <laughs> good point. Hey, let's take another quick uh, break here, Mark. And when we come back, uh, we'll go to the next one. I'm going to save you guys. I'm only going to do one Kimmy haiku unless uh, you know I get some sort of feedback here on the live chat uh, if we want uh, more of uh, Kimmy's uh, book of uh, haiku here. But uh, anyways, time for a quick quick break hang in there we'll be back in just a moment so uh please don't go away all right well welcome back to the show and mark uh are, are you teasing with your helmet or <laughs> or, or is that uh yeah you're just teasing aren't you what, what's up it's next a studio prop it's a studio prop uh, another great question so this is one and I, I can't even attribute this to one person because I've had so many people asking us to talk a lot about the W series and more about the role in the future of women in motorsport. And this is something that we're looking to tee up as a dedicated show during the off season, because we really want to deep dive into this topic. But excitingly, there was some news <coughs> recently about the W series and to kind of back this up a little bit. Um, if you look at the world of motorsports, there have been some women that have had success. And, and, you know, we can talk about Danica Patrick and some mm -hmm. of her successes in NASCAR. She won an IndyCar race in Japan back in, I think, 08. Um, I was lucky enough, I've seen her drive in person. I haven't met her, um, but I've seen her race in person. So there have been some women that have been successful in motorsport. But ultimately, the challenge for women in Miss Motorsport historically is that at the grassroots level, we haven't done enough as a society to encourage or incent young girls to participate. It's a boy-dominated sport. If you go to your local karting track on a, any given weekend, of 100 carters on the track, maybe two or three of them are going to be girls. So no matter how talented they may be, there's just not enough of them to overcome the odds and break through at the open wheel level, whether it's Formula 2, Formula 1, IndyCar, there's just not enough of them competing. So ultimately, we as a society and what the FIA and all of these grassroots organizations need to do is do more to encourage young girls to get involved in karting because I think once they do, it's, it's a really good sport for them to be able to compete at. Now, a couple of years ago, as a tool to help promote women in motorsports, um, a couple of folks, not least of which were David Coulthard and Adrian Newen and a few other people got together and they helped stand up the W Series. So the W Series raced its first and to date its only championship in 2019. So it was a 20 driver, 10, well, I guess you couldn't even say they had 10 teams, but 20 driver, six race championship. And it was ultimately won by Brit Jamie Chadwick. Um, there was some interesting racing. They raced a non-championship reverse grid race as well, which was actually won by a Canadian racer, which was really cool to see. Um, but ultimately it kind of raced independently of any other championship. So exposure was a little bit low. Um, they weren't getting a, love, a lot of love from the major networks. They didn't race last year because of the COVID pandemic, but they are going to race this year. And there's two really key developments that are going to help the W Series. One is the fact that it's now paired up with Formula One. So the W Series won't be racing independently of Formula One or any other championship. So in the previous, it would go off to Assen, it would go off to these other tracks, and it would race by itself. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult to get 
the media or a television network to follow an unestablished championship, to go to a track and set up the cameras, invest the money, not knowing if anyone's going to watch. Now, the benefit now is you will be seeing the W Series race on the same weekend at the same track as Formula One. So it just becomes part of the spectacle, which is great news because all of the F1 media is there. You're going to have 100,000 people throughout the race weekend, maybe two or 300,000, depending on the race. You're also going to have the networks there. So the benefit is by racing at an F1 event on an F1 weekend as a support series, you have a built-in audience. So what we saw this last week was the announcement that a whole slew of new networks have signed up to start broadcasting W Series. It's not clear where it's going to be broadcast in Canada, but it's great for the sport. In 2021, you're going to see eight events um, in the W Series Championship. I've got them right here. You're going to see a doubleheader at the Red Bull Ring. They're going to race at Silverstone, the Hungora Ring. Uh, they're going to be at Spa, Zandavort, Circuit of the Americas, and they're going to be in Mexico City as well. So you're going to get some geographical representation. Now, I think the one thing that I really want to preface um, is that there's some incredibly talented women racing in that series. Whether any of them will eventually make the leap to formula one or make the leap to formula two or formula three to continue their their trajectory towards formula one i don't know i am very 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 confident that with some of the changes that the fia is doing to help encourage and incent young girls to get into motorsport and i think with some of the things that individual national programs are doing national bodies are doing to incent this will eventually see a uh, female representation of formula one and maybe not in five years but i'm very confident we'll see it in 10 years and you know we follow we've been talking about the fact that there's some talented young girls or talented young women racing now in f4 um i think we've tweeted a couple times hamda al kasib or kabisi um the emirati racer is doing really well she scored a podium in f4 f4 italian championship a week and a half ago which was really cool to see um she's an up-and-coming talent and there are countless others uh, it's just going to take a little bit of time. And the disadvantage that women have is that they haven't had the same opportunity at that young level that boys historically have. And hopefully with the W Series promoting motorsports, it'll help incent and encourage young girls to get involved. So hopefully that answers all of the questions that our listeners have had about the W Series and women in motorsports. <laughs> You know, it, it really is interesting because I think Sebastian Vettel was just even saying this week uh, in the last couple of days just uh, how cost prohibitive racing in the junior series are, regardless, I think, uh, you know, race, gender, just anything in, in general. I mean, we, we, we've talked about it on the show before. I mean, if you look at the Formula One grid, I mean, there's a pretty obvious pattern of the kind of uh, people that are racing in, in Formula One and, uh, and what their background is. I think that's why Lewis is, uh, you know, why he stands out. I mean, uh, you know, he's such the you know i don't want to say he's the odd man out in, in in a bad way because he's not but i mean he just doesn't fit that sort of uh, that that um stereotype obviously right i mean he comes from a working class family i mean he's he's black i mean he doesn't come from a privileged background and i mean they worked very hard to you know to get where he is and get and get those opportunities and uh, but i mean he is uh, the, the the rare case and that's the the one thing that formula 1 is supposed to be it's supposed to be the 20 best drivers in the world you know, asterisk, right? <laughs> I mean, and so th this is, I think we've, what we've talked about before with the whole, we race is one thing, which I don't want to go as far as say that we're 
skeptical about. I mean, I think there there definitely is a degree of skepticism, but I think it's more like, okay, well, yeah, I guess it is skepticism. But I'm going to say yeah, that, it's yeah, it's, it's that What's if we're sitting here and say, okay, well, th- this is what you guys are saying. Now, now prove it. We want more racial diversity in motorsports. Okay, that's a, sp- a start. And Lewis is going doing his own thing as well. But then, you know, you have to, it has to be all inclusive, right? And I mean, that that's the, the, the one thing that if it's just going to be all male drivers, then that's one thing. But then you I guess you couldn't really make that claim to be, you know, the 20 best drivers in the world because, you know, you're only, you know, focusing on one specific, you know, part of the the human, uh, you know, demographics and population, right? So who knows? I mean, it'd be great. I mean, the one thing is that regardless drivers of race or gender, whatever it might be, it's just getting those opportunities. And obviously some people are just not getting those opportunities in general. And then, of course, if it's cost prohibitive, then it's just difficult no matter who you are are and then uh, cases and, and and people like Lewis Hamilton that uh, you know worked hard to, to to come up through the junior series just may never get those those opportunities and I think that in the long run it's the it, it's a loss for the sport right because you know the, these bright talents so you know, wherever they're coming from from whatever corner of the globe just are never going to get that op- opportunity to to shine on the big stage and I think that uh, that that we in general um, you know we're worse off for it I think that uh, that that's that we're, we're missing out I worry a little bit too about the impact that this concept of the straight up pay driver has on the American audience and, mm. and ultimately Formula One can exist and it can be successful without the United States, but obviously that's not beneficial long term. You want you want to be successful in the United States. You want to have an audience there. But I think one of the things that w- I think our, our listeners really struggle with and a lot of my friends really struggle with is this concept of the pay driver. And so many people have reached out to me to talk about Mazapan and they're like, so they, and they'll ask me point blank. They're like, let me get this straight. Then Mazapan, but doesn't have a seat. Mm-hmm. They're like, Nick DeVries won an F2 championship, has never had a sniff of Formula One. Magnuson's out. Rojan's out. Hulkenberg doesn't have a seat. Like they just go down this list and it's like, you know what? At the end of the day, it, it's exactly what it, it's exactly what you think it is. He's, he's effectively a paid driver and his dad bought him the seat. And that's the unfortunate reality of Formula One is that you have some drivers that are there purely on talent. And you, you mentioned one, Lewis. Um, I think Daniel Ricciardo is another perfect example of that. But you also have a lot of drivers that had certain advantages, financial advantages, because it's a super expensive sport. And that would be the Mazapans of the world. And I think sometimes drivers are forgiven a little bit. Obviously, Max had some advantages that other drivers didn't. He grew up around the sport. He had access to technology, mm-hmm. academies that other drivers drivers wouldn't. Um, he's not an organic product that grew up grew up in the suburb of Amsterdam or Paris and just happened to like Formula One. Um, he had some advantages. And, and Lance, Lance is another and guy. Yeah, totally. And yep. again, we love them both. And, and I think Lance has proven that he can be successful at the highest level, which is great. Um, but they're also compelling characters and they're, they're great personalities and, and they represent Canada well. But I think that's a real question, which is we don't see that in NASCAR and we don't see, well, maybe, maybe sometimes with sponsors, but we don't see that in the NBA or the premier league or major league baseball. Like you have to be there of your own physical merits and the formula one. It's, it's a little bit, a little bit shady. 
Actually, not shady. Gray. gray yeah, area. it's a bit of gray area. I know. Uh, I mean, as somebody that's uh, watched uh, Formula One for you know ever since I was a kid, I mean, the the, the concept of a pay driver is, is not new to me either, and it is uh, something that I still don't uh, completely wrap my my head around. Especially when you just ran off that list there of guys that uh, currently aren't in Formula One and clearly are talented enough to be, but they don't necessarily come with a big fat uh, sponsorship deal or you know a big pile of money with them and. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's frustrating. So, I mean, it is obviously at a very tough and elite sport to, to get into. And, 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 you know, I guess circle back to the whole we race is one thing. But at the end of the day, I, I mean, that's that's the whole, con, you know, uh, part of the conversation that, that currently uh, the way that it is now, there is only 20 seats available and they should be open to the 20 best drivers in the world. And I guess it's just, uh, you know, opening that pool up to, you know, actually make it, you know, all inclusive to actually, you know, get all 20 best uh, drivers in the world uh, into the series. So, yeah. Do we have time for a related question? Because I would love your thoughts on this. Sure. I'll yeah, we're going to go break. into a break in about three minutes. So, uh, you know, if you can squeeze it in, go for it. Yeah, so this is a great question that, and I just kind of teed this one up because I thought about what we're talking about. A great question from Benoit Plamondon. Uh, he asked a question. He's like, another fact that I find interesting is the desire of Haas to find an American pilot. Gunter Steiner is often questioned about it and does not hide that he would like to have an American pilot, but that currently there is none. No American currently has the super license required to compete at Formula One mm-hmm. level. What are your thoughts just on that that question and Haas and their commitment to an American driver, et cetera? Well, you know, it is uh, really interesting. And, um, you know, I think this uh, th- there was an email that I received from somebody uh, about a week or two ago, basically asking this uh, very same uh, question. And, you know, I-, I think it's like anything else. I, I think that, uh, you know, it's I-, I don't think it comes to any surprise to, uh, you know, that once, uh, you know, uh, Americans get their, you know, their their set their eyes or their sights on something they want to be successful at, they'll, they'll make it happen. Right. So if they want to get a successful American driver into Formula One, it's going to happen. And let's not forget, I mean, Americans have been successful in Formula One. Americans have won world championships in Formula One. It's just been a really, really long time since an American actually won a Grand Prix. I mean, we're probably going back to Mario Andretti in what, the late 1970s? I mean, let's not forget that Phil Hill won the world championship for Ferrari in what, 1961, 1962? Mario, an extremely successful uh, driver in Formula One uh, with, uh, with with Lotus. I mean, his son Michael raced in uh, for for McLaren in the 1990s. Eddie Cheever ra- raced in Formula One in the 80s for a long, long time. But it's it's overdue to have uh, an American uh, driver in in Formula One. And uh, yeah, oh, so uh, the the original question was posed to me by Devin Rance, uh, who uh, who was uh, basically asking the same thing. And he wants to know: Do all the good uh, American drivers go to Indy or NASCAR? I, I think there's obviously that that's part of it. But then again, I mean, there is, you know, th- you know, is that funnel of a development, uh, you know, there for them? I mean, uh, Sergio Perez, a Mexican driver, he said he basically had to give up his childhood to go and race in Europe because that's where all the feeder, uh, feeder series were and all the opportunities to get noticed and hopefully get into um, into a situation that would lead into Formula One. And, uh, you know, and I think that's the same thing right now with uh, with American drivers. I mean, are there guys in, in the USA that are talented enough to race in Formula One? 
Absolutely. Are they getting the opportunities that uh, that uh, that they need? No, they're not getting them for for one reason or another. I mean, obviously, Lance has got that opportunity, which has probably obviously been brokered by his da- dad's uh, money and uh, and contacts and opportunities. I mean, he's got the talent. It's just that his dad's connections and money's uh, money has helped you know open doors along the way. And the same with uh, with Nick as well, uh, uh, Nicholas as well. And I mean, I'm not going to look down at them at all. I mean, they've had to work hard. I mean, it's not like here's a fast car go out there i mean we we see the dark side to that and what's going on on the other side of the Haas garage next uh, next to, to to mick schumacher and how much struggles the uh, the other driver there is having right so it uh, you know it doesn't work out all the time but um yeah i, I mean that's the thing i mean I'm, I'm sure that there are american drivers out there they're just they're just not getting their opportunities I'll try and answer this quickly as well, because I know we have to get to a break. But to your point, the last American to win a championship was, let me double check here, Mario Andretti in 1978. And the last American to win a Grand Prix was Mario Andretti at the Dutch Grand Prix in 1978. So you're right. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, I, a while. Gosh. When I, when I answered this question for Benoit, I think it just comes down to desire. Like young American carters, um, kids that are racing in carts at six, seven, eight, nine, ten. They're racing on dirt ovals, ovals, mm-hmm. short tracks, super speedways. They grow up and they see NASCAR and they see Indy. In NASCAR, there are hundreds of opportunities to race in the various NASCAR sanctioned series. Hundreds of opportunities. Yeah. So you grow up racing point. carts and you're racing on ovals. There's a clear pathway and you don't have to leave the United States. And likewise with Indy as well, you know, you can drive carts and you can get comfortable with ovals and short ovals and speedways and kind of graduate into Indy and you don't have to leave the United States. Your point about Sergio Perez is bang on. If you want to be successful in Formula One, there is no development feeder series in the United States. Motorsports in the U.S., and justifiably so, is structured to feed the domestic racing series, Mm -hmm. all of the different NASCAR-sanctioned series in IndyCar. Ultimately, if you want to be successful in Formula One, you've got to go to Asia or you've got to go to Europe. And for a lot of young American drivers, why would I do that? I'm going to go to Europe when I'm 12 years old. I'm going to live away from home in a country where I don't speak the language to have a shot at one in 20 seats. F that. I will stay at home and have a shot at one of 100 different stock car seats. So yeah. I think it's it's different. And Lance and, and Nicholas are, are slightly different because I think their aspirations from a very young age were always Formula One. They're Canadian drivers. They were exposed to Formula One in a different way. They were exposed to motorsports in a different way. And their entire career is built around it. They're both shipped off to Europe when they're in their teens or their uh, late tweens. Um, they got a taste of Formula and the championship and the drivers and the culture at a young age. But for American drivers, what's the incentive? Go to Europe spend a million dollars a year and ultimately not have a shot at one of the 20 seats anyways, I'll stay at home and I'll compete for a spot in this, in sanctioned uh, stock car. Yeah, exactly. And another thing is too, you could be, uh, you know, the one American guy that makes it into Formula One that nobody's ever heard of at home, right? Exactly, <laughs> you know, whereas, exactly. whereas you could be racing at D- D- Daytona or you could be racing at Indy and you could be a household name in in, in racing or in, in families and, and people that are race fans, right? Totally. So, I mean, you can sacrifice all that and be a virtual nobody. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it, it might change now. I mean, we're seeing obviously a lot of interest over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, I mean, is there somebody in, in, in the pipeline right now? I mean, we've talked about Colton Herta and I, I mean, he was Mario's pick that uh, for, for a yeah. guy he'd like to see in Formula One. 
or is there somebody a little bit younger that's in maybe one of these uh, feeder series? And let, heaven forbid that there's somebody that hasn't even, that, that is not yet even born. <laughs> that might be the great white hope to uh, to to make it into Formula oh, One. I just want to add one thing. Yeah. I know we got to go to a break. Shame on Haas. You know what? And I'll be very, very strict here. They've been in the championship since 2015. They could have started an academy. They could have yep. identified young drivers. They could have pumped money into the U.S. system. They could have brought talent over from the United States and paid for their boarding and their development in the U.S. Haas has done nothing to mm-hmm. develop a pipeline of U.S. talent. So, you know what? Gunther Steiner can say whatever he wants. Gene Haas and that team have done nothing to nurture a young talent. They've been in the championship for six years. They could have developed somebody that was 12 or 13 or 5 or 10 of them, and they could have had somebody that was ready from the U.S. for this car now. They've had the time, and shame on them because they've done nothing to develop and nurture a U.S. talent. Okay, yeah, break. Absolutely. Break. <laughs> okay. Well, you're getting good at this. Uh, anyways, uh, as Mark said, we're going to take a break. Don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. All right. Well, I, I'm just going to sit back now. I mean, you you can uh, you're, you're all good to go. You can have the controls now. But uh, <laughs> anyways, welcome back to the show, everybody. Okay, well, we were uh, uh, that was a little bit uh, of a, an interesting tangent to, to talk about just before the break. There, anyways, where do you want to go to uh, now? What what's next up in the, uh, the, the the next topic for us? So here's a really good question, and I like this one. So this one comes from at Broncos Elite. He asked this question. This isn't necessarily a podcast question, although I, I should have said that um here's a great podcast question what he quote unquote said um but why are all of the fans in orange and, and what he's alluding to here are verstappen fans he's like are they verstappen fans or are they just red bull fans in general i'm gonna toss this question over to you because i think from a genetic dna level you might be more equipped to answer this question. Yeah, well, you know, it, it would have been nice if you kind of given me a heads up for this one, because I could have actually come prepared and worn the uh, the, the appropriate oh. attire for that. So anyways, that goes to the uh, the, the House of Orange and uh, and, the, and the colors that uh, the, of the Dutch royal family and Holland and all that. So basically, in uh, when it comes to Star Spangled Banner, red, white and blue, I mean, you know, think about Fourth uh, of July and uh, everything that uh, that 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 uh, you would dress up and wear on those uh, uh, you know, for for celebrations like that, uh, obviously, right? So, I mean, that is uh, the, the the colors that uh, that represent uh, the Dutch national teams. And I mean, you go, I mean, the, the Euro twenty twenty competition is on for European soccer right now. And uh, me being half Dutch, and uh, well, I'm half Dutch, half English, which makes me one hundred percent Canadian. But uh, I mean, the Dutch side of my my, my background, I, I identify heavily with. I mean, I lived there for most of my twenties. I'm fluent in the in, in the language. I mean, I, I just I feel as at home there as I do here in Canada, and it's they're very very passionate. I mean, when I first went to my first Formula One race back in two thousand and one, I did see Verstappen race. Now that was just the boss, and and and, and Max was just uh, you know knee high to a grasshopper at that at that point. But I mean, Yoss was was popular. But I mean, he was also racing for TWR Arrows, which was, you know, basically your Williams, Haas, back of the grid team. And I mean, 
he did what he could. I mean, he did have a stint at, uh, at Benetton as well in the mid 1990s, but I mean, he just, uh, and I mean, he, you know, you know, kudos to him. I'm going to give him, you know, credit here because when he was asked, uh, just when Max was breaking into Formula One, who was the faster driver? Uh, he, and Yoss straight up said that uh, that it was Max. So Max is obviously, um, you know, he's he's a legit Formula One driver. He's got uh, all the credentials now. That he's matured a little bit and all the attributes to be a world champion, given that uh, you know, given the, the the opportunity to compete for one in a competitive car which uh, this year looks more, you know, possible than in, in the past several years. But that's the thing. I mean, he's, he's developed a, a bit of a cult following. And, and that's the thing, especially when it comes to races. Obviously, we're going to go to Zanforts, which is in Holland this year. That's going to be a sea of orange. But you're also going to see it in a lot of the... Um, the European races uh, as well. I mean, Red Bull ring, I mean, a couple of years ago, it looked like a, like a world cup soccer match with the, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the amount of Dutch fans that traveled there. Belgium's going to be the same. And then you're going to see pockets of them at uh, different races as well. I mean, Dutch people love to travel. I mean, everywhere that you go, you're always going to run into Dutch people. I mean, for better or worse. And I mean, of course I'm going to say for better, but you're, you're going to see pockets of max fans uh, all the time. And uh, you know, if, if you want to see what I'm talking about, may, maybe this year, Here's a bit of a bad of uh, an example because we're coming to we're living this post pandemic world right now. So if you go and watch, uh, you know, soccer match at Euro 2020, the, the stadiums aren't quite full. But I mean, go back, watch, uh, you know, replays from World Cup, uh, World Cups and Euros past and you'll see what I'm talking about. And and that sort of mentality and the way that they're very passionate, especially about their soccer teams, that that passion has really, uh, you know, transferred over and they've really adopted Max. And he's, he's, like I say, he's a bit of a cult hero in Holland now. And, uh, you know, it, it's funny because, you know, I, I see Max in, in certain ways. And, you know, we were talking earlier, you know, about uh, Kimmy, you know, with uh, in, in, uh, from JJ's email off the top of the show about this sort of standoffish kind of gritty kind of guy. Max is sort of kind of that way. But uh, I, I know for some people, he kind of rubs them the wrong way. But culturally, I get it. Because I, I mean, I, I understand him because I, I recognize that characteristic and that personality. Not so much in myself, but it's it's definitely a lot of traits. I think that uh, that Max has is very very Dutch, and I think that uh, that he's very identifiable to Dutch people. And he's fast as heck, and he wins races, and uh, you know he's not uh, he, he's not afraid to sp- speak his mind. And I, I think that's what makes him you know pretty genuine and very you know likable from from like a Dutch uh, point of view. So. And- you know, I'm going to let you take it. I'm going to run upstairs and get an orange T-shirt and come back. And, uh... yeah, go, 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 go. You've got time. <laughs> yeah, that's I'll right. on for 20 minutes. There you go. I think what you were referring to and what the listener was referring to is historically in a conventional F1 season, yeah. when you see the shots of the grandstands, you'll see entire grandstands that are just blanketed in orange. And you're right. That's that's intentional. And it's very similar to MotoGP. And I, I keep talking about MotoGP, but in MotoGP, when you buy your tickets to an event, you actually get to buy your tickets based on the grandstand of the rider that you support. So you can buy tickets to sit in the Valentino Rossi grandstand or the Mark Marquez grandstand. 
And when you go in there, they provide your shirt, their banners, and you are there. You are a sea of fluorescent yellow. You are a sea of orange or whatever the case may be. But the really cool thing is Max has kind of brought a little bit of that flavor and the Dutch fans have brought that passion to Formula One, which is really cool. It's just, it's so unfortunate that we weren't able to capture any of that last year or really early this year. But I promise as the season goes on for our newer listeners, this is something that makes the races that much more exciting. It looks like the Red Bull ring has found a way to ensure that we'll see a capacity crowd for both of those races upcoming in Austria. And uh, you should absolutely see that sea of orange that, uh, that you were referring to. Yeah, I, I mean, it is interesting too. I mean, just with the uh, different drivers at different times in, in, in Formula One. I mean, like I said, when uh, when I went to my first race back in 2001, was was right sort of getting to sort of peak Schumacher. I mean, he'd already won a couple of titles. He was a uh, Ferrari was really, really uh, competitive at that point. The Nürburgring was absolutely blanketed from from one end to the other in in Ferrari scarlet red. And I mean, Michael being a, a German driver, I mean, you, you know, I mean, they, they chose to adopt the team colors rather than say, uh, you know, like like German colors. I mean, for for their soccer team is, um, you know, white shirts with the, with black shorts, for example. But I mean, the orange is very, very identifiable. And I, I think it just uh, really depends where the driver's from, which uh, team he's racing with and how the, you know, the, the his fans tend to identify with with, the, with that specific driver. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. And one of the things that I think Lance and Nicholas were really disappointed about is that for the second consecutive year, we weren't able to have a Grand Prix in Canada where we had two mm. drivers. And I think a lot of people were excited to see what the crowd would have looked like and how much the two of them. And of course, uh, Lance has raced in Canada before during a Grand Prix weekend, but Nicholas hasn't had that opportunity. Cool. Yeah. Not yet. Anyways. Not yet. Have you got, I got, so I got a couple more. Go um, for it. Anything else from your side? Uh, no, not at the moment. I, I just threw up into the live chat some of the, uh, the the highlights of the 2001 European Grand Prix. Hopefully there's some uh, good shots of the crowd there. I mean, it, it was pretty cool. I mean, if, if that's what it was like, uh, you know, when Schumacher was racing Ferrari, it just uh, I sort of salivate about that thinking I got to go to Monza one day, you know, just as, as a neutral fan and, and sit there and just uh, soak up the atmosphere and watch the, the, the Tifosi go nuts. I mean, that's why it would have been awesome to be there in 2019 when Charles won that race. You know, I know there's a bit of an asterisk beside that uh, because of the dodginess that was going on with the Ferrari, allegedly, uh, during that season. But I mean, the the atmosphere there and the way that Charles held off those uh, two Mercedes cars for the the entire race. Uh, I mean, it, it was exciting and the, the atmosphere was uh, pretty cool. But anyways, over to you, my friend. Yeah. So another great question here from BJ Miller. And this is something that I, I didn't plan to ask on air, but I thought it was a really good question. With Alpha Tori being the development team for Red Bull mm -hmm. and the struggles AT drivers have had making the leap, blah, blah, blah. Why doesn't the team make the setup of the Alpha Tori cars, Scuderia Alpha Tori cars, identical to the Red Bull ones? Um, and I think basically what he's asking here is like, hey, if Alpha Tori is supposed to be the development team, why have two different cars? Like, why bring them into Formula One and they have to learn one car and then they make the transition mm -hmm. over to Red Bull and they have to learn another car? Fair. I think early on when Red Bull entered the sport and they gobbled up a competitor team and turned it into what was at the time Toro Rosso, that was their intention because they could. In 2009, the technical and the sporting regulations were overhauled and every single individual team had to develop its own chassis from the ground up. So for 
Red Bull to have a sister team using an identical car or even similar suspension setups. They have to run the same chassis, which isn't possible. So AlphaTauri, based on the technical and the sporting regulations, are required to build an independent car that is completely different than anything else being developed on the grid. So mm -hmm. because they have to build their own chassis, they have to build aero packages that complement that chassis. Now, there are some sanctioned parts. So under the guidelines of the technical regulations, there are some parts you can buy, things like gearboxes and power units. And naturally, they buy those, those parts in unison with their um, kind of parent team, the, the Red Bull team. But ultimately, the, the technical regulations, the sporting regulations, just prohibit teams from sharing chassis. So a customer team cannot buy a chassis from another team. So even Haas that borrows everything they possibly can from Ferrari, they outsource. And I think it's Delara, but I think even Haas has a third-party company that's not Ferrari that develops their chassis for them. So in the case of AlphaTauri, it just comes down to whether Red Bull would like it or not, they can't have identical or even similar cars. Now, I think... I think, again, like I said, that's probably something that they would have preferred, uh, but ultimately that's not the way it played out. Now, currently that team, again, the AlphaTauri team is actually based out of an entirely different country. So Red Bull, like we've talked about so many times before, is based out of Milton Keynes in the UK. Um, uh, AlphaTauri is based out of continental Europe. They have complete and total creative license on their car, their aero, their chassis. Um, they get a little bit of feedback from Red Bull in terms of gearbox and the power unit, and they get some technicians from Honda, but ultimately they're, they're kind of just on their own. And that's just the way it is. Yeah, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Great question. Cool. All right. What else have you got? Or should we take a break? Uh, we can take a quick break. And then uh, when we come back, we can either go back to the uh, the, the mailbag and uh, Twitter, or we can actually go and maybe just talk about maybe a couple of the, the news stories that have been let's out in the last couple of days. Okay, let's do some news stories. Perfect. Okay, let's do so in a moment. So please don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. And where should we start? Uh, basically, the the stories I wanted to cover uh, tonight, uh, as we start to close it down here, is I, I thought it was interesting, because I think that you tweeted it, and I think we mentioned it briefly in one of the recent uh, shows was uh, was about uh, George uh, Russell, because uh, one of their, um, you know, senior people in the team, uh, Dave Robson, uh, says that uh, seeing George leave uh, at the end of this year in 2022 would be a massive loss for Williams. And, uh, you know, that that's, uh, you know, I think that goes without uh, saying, but I think the story or the things that, uh, that we'd uh, previously addressed was, uh, you know, George basically coming out and saying that, uh, you know, he wants his, uh, you know, his F1 future decided by the summer break or by the end of the summer break and stuff like that. And as much as I love George and what, uh, what, what he's done, uh, you know, so far and how he's grown as a driver and his, uh, you know, his very short and brief, Formula One career is that I don't think he's at that stage of his career that he can really make those statements. I think that uh, that it's his prerogative uh, to, to say so. And uh, of course, he's going to want to have that uh, clarity. I just don't think that, uh, you know, he's got anything that he can back those, uh, you know, those statements up with or those desires. You're absolutely right. I'm not clear. And I said this on Twitter. I'm not clear what his leverage is here. Ultimately, he has designs on one seat. And it's not clear that that seat's going to be available in the off season. Mm -hmm. And if not, where else are you going to go? I, I mean, quite frankly, there aren't a lot of really attractive seats that are going to be available next year. And if you did take a seat that wasn't Mercedes, you are basically putting the nail in the coffin. That is your Mercedes career. And yeah. just to be clear, because I think a lot of our 
listeners have asked this question. He is a Mercedes driver. He was part of the Mercedes Academy. He is technically under contract to Mercedes until the end of this year. Now, he has a contract to race for Williams because he's effectively on loan to that team because Mercedes didn't have an opening for him three years ago. But ultimately, if he opts to not stay with Williams and there isn't an opportunity for him to drive with Mercedes and he goes somewhere else, his designs on becoming a Mercedes driver are over. But I'm not clear where it is he would go. And, and I get his frustrations that he feels that he's potentially being underutilized and his development is being stunted at that that Grove-based Williams team, which has shown marginal improvements this year, maybe. Mm-hmm. I, I, to be fair, they're showing positive comps in their times um, at each of the tracks this year, which is which is good, but they were just so bad last year, maybe it's irrelevant. I just I don't know what his leverage is. And it's not like he's coming out frequently in the media and stating this, because I think it's pretty clear that everyone at, at Brackley understands that's where he wants to be, and I think that's where the British press wants him to be, and he's a young driver. I just know what leverage he has. Yeah. At the end of the day, if if Mercedes decide to go with Valtteri Bottas and Lewis and they want him to keep the seat warm at Williams, he'll probably do that. But I think if Williams or if uh, Mercedes goes with somebody other than Valtteri Bottas, then I think his time is up anyways. But yeah, I get yeah. frustrated with his comments because I just, I don't know what leverage he has. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of try and bring this uh, discussion back to this. Uh, you'll see where I'm going with this in just a moment. But uh, Christian Horner, uh, team principal at Red Bull, has said that uh, Perez, Sergio Perez, is ahead of expectation, but there are no rush to uh, give the, the, the Mexican a new deal for 2022. Now, we, we've talked about this before, with the whole rotating Kvyat, Albon, Gasly rotating door that they've had at that number two uh, seat at Red Bull. I mean, throw Danny Ricardo in there as well. Although, uh, I mean, his decision uh, was uh, was was self induced, self inflicted to to leave the team rather than being you know forced out as with those uh, those other drivers. But the thing is that we've talked about it before. At some point, if they want to be serious in in in, in challenging Mercedes or Ferrari or whoever's the top dog. They need that one-two punch, like they had with uh, Danny Ricardo and Max Verstappen a couple of years ago, and they just don't have that uh, stability, right? Sergio is looking more and more like that guy. I mean, I know it was a bit shaky through the first couple of races of the season, but he's had a couple of good races underneath his belt. And I mean, I think Baku was his best weekend by far uh, for for Red Bull so far this year. But I mean, we still have uh, you know three quarters of the season basically la- left to run. So I, I can see what, uh, what, uh, what 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 Horner is saying, where he's coming from, why that um, you know that uh, that they they think he's ahead of uh, the where he needs to be. But they also don't need to rush into uh, giving him a new contract. Fair enough. But hey, Christian, you know, if it's just me and you, you know, friendly hint, you got to commit to, uh, you know, a a solid second driver at some point. You're going to know who and when and when the circumstances are right. I'm I'm sure you you're much better to judge that than than, than me, obviously. Now, this is interesting. I mean, uh, we've seen these uh, ties to Mercedes uh, have been detrimental to some of these uh, younger drivers in, in recent history. Esteban Ocon was, and I mean, to his uh, unfortunate, uh, you know, uh, I've, you know, uh, result. I guess is the, the the best way to put it is that that ultimately that tie in with Mercedes ended up uh, hampering him, and he had to spend you know spend a year out of uh, Formula One after doing so very well at at Force India. Of course, they had uh, Mercedes power units, which they still do now as Aston Martin. 
But ultimately, at the end of the day, he was uh, his hands were tied, and uh, you know he had like this this uh, you know th- this this wonderful connection to Mercedes, which ultimately didn't lead into a drive uh, with Mercedes themselves, and handcuffed him in the opportunities to go to other teams. And then instead of uh, being able to race, he spent uh, one year basically sitting on the pit wall in the garage as the reserve driver for for Mercedes. Now, if it came to George Russell. You know, and I I don't want to suggest that, uh, you know, Total Wolf is a a vindictive uh, person or mean, but I think that uh, he's his his priorities are with the Mercedes and he will always look out for Mercedes and the best interest of the team. Another young driver should mention, too, that uh, had that connection was Pascal Verlein, not even Formula One after being a reserve driver for the the, the team in the uh, Hamilton Rosberg era. Anyways, uh, going back to, to, to George. I could see Toto, you know, not wanting to sever those ties with George, even if it meant that uh, he had to sit out a year because say they didn't want to give Sergio Perez a new contract and say George, uh, you know, had his eyes on that, uh, that, that second seat. Well, I mean, why not? I would see that uh, I, I could very much see a scenario uh, with, uh, w- with uh, Mercedes and with Toto, not uh, because he's trying to do the wrong thing by George, but by wanting to do the right thing uh, by Mercedes is not wanting this guy to go, knowing how good he is, to get him in, let him go to my, my, my direct and immediate rivals and get him in that second car because, you know, it didn't work out with us, but you know put him in a a, competitive car which has been better than our car at times many times this year and then that's going to hurt us i think he's always going to put his mercedes interest above anybody else's that's 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 just the way he rolls Uh, dude you gotta unmute yourself (laughs) thank you for that it feels like i've ever been at there you go it's it's funny because i only just realized i can mute myself because i tend to sit in a squeaky chair so i've Really useful, uh, useful tool to have. But thank you for that. Uh, but it was a flashback to every meeting I've ever been at <laughs> in the last fifteen months. Yep. I think the thing that kind of came to my mind as you were talking then is, and we talk about this so much is Red Bulls in this unique situation because they own a separate team, and even though that team functions largely independently of the parent team, they control the drivers, right? So if I'm Red Bull and I have an academy and I'm developing drivers and I have two seats at my alpha team, my core team, if I've got more talent and I want to keep them and I don't want to lose them to another team, I can stash them away at Scuderia Alpha Tauri. If I'm Mercedes, as much as I want to lean on Williams to be that for us, they're still a totally independent team that isn't receiving cash from Mercedes in any Mm -hmm. meaningful way to help support their operations. So ultimately they'll take George Russell because he's young and because he's cheap. um, But ultimately they're not going to be, they're not going to allow the Brackley squad. They're not going to allow Mercedes to dictate who their drivers were, but you're right because Mercedes has developed some young talent over the last couple of years. And you look at Esteban Ocon, that's a great point. Um, After he lost his seat at force India, which is another team that was always kind of speculated or linked to be a potential Mercedes B team. After he lost his seat there, he was out for a year. And I know he traveled with Mercedes and he did some sim driving and some test driving, but that's not what he wants to be doing. And then your other point too, about, um, Verline is Verline did ultimately lost his seat. They didn't have anywhere to stash him. Mm-hmm. I think he ended up doing DTM driving in Germany. And once yeah. you're out of Formula One for a year or two, it's really difficult to come back again, especially with the influx of young talent. So that's definitely a struggle Mercedes has had is that when it has developed young talent, it doesn't necessarily have anywhere to put it, especially when you have somebody like Lewis Hamilton 
on that team. And, and he's just kind of going to unquestionably have a seat every year that he possibly wants one. And then again, it just comes down to Bottas and how much pressure this puts on Bottas. Because when you went into the 2017 season, they had some young talent. Russell was still a couple years away. Ocon wasn't ready. Verline definitely wasn't ready. They didn't have anyone from the academy ready to go. So they went with Bottas and he's done what they needed him to do the last couple of years. But now you're in this position where you have Russell and what do you do with him? Um, Ultimately, he doesn't have any leverage. There aren't really going to be any opportunities anyways, but you risk losing him. And if you think he's a valuable asset, you've got to make a move to accommodate him or he maybe does go to a different team. Yeah. Well, if you look at uh, Verline, just to uh, kind of bring this uh, story to a first, full circle, I mean, he's uh, now racing in Formula E for, for, for Porsche. So there you go. And uh, yeah, I mean, so, so I mean, he's completely about as far away from uh, Mercedes as you can get. I mean, although Porsche is obviously another uh, German uh, car manufacturer. That was that super funny story I shared before, by the way, when I met I met Verline thought it was Acon. And all those years, I thought I'd met Acon until I saw Acon on the screen one day. I'm like, oh, they've mislabeled it. They're saying that's Acon. I'm like, oh, no, I met the wrong guy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Moving along. <laughs> okay. Well, that's uh, that's hilarious. Uh, I seem to remember you actually told me that story before. I'd forgotten about that. Yep. Um, as we yeah, as we start to just uh, kind of uh, round it up uh, for another show, Mark, uh, I guess this should not be uh, any surprise. But as we go into uh, the the French Grand Prix this uh, the, this weekend, Red Bull said they're braced, they're completely prepared, and they have no doubt that uh, Mercedes is they're going to come at them with everything, including the kitchen sink uh, this weekend in, in France. I mean, they've had two. It's probably the two worst races in their history since uh, 2014. I mean, they've had bad weekends here and there but i mean they've they've struggled in baku they struggled in uh, monaco and uh i you know they, there's been a lot of questions uh asked of them over the past uh, several weeks and, and rightly so i mean when you sit at the top as the best for so long and you have uh, a couple of races where you're so much off the pace and uh compared to your your, your rival that um it's I, th- I think it's just right right and proper that uh that these questions are asked so i mean it's stand up and be counted for for, for mercedes uh, this weekend i mean red bull they have to be prepared but i mean at the same time they just need to focus on what they need to do they need to go out there and just uh you know go out uh, at paul ricard and uh, just focus on their own weekend and ultimately whatever uh mercedes does they do they, they do and then they'll just have to deal with it on the track on saturday and sunday red bull's not stupid right no like, if you look at christian horner you know, if you look at the world drivers championship standings right now you look at lewis's performance he won he had a second place finish he finished first he finished first he had a really disappointing monaco and i don't think either of us would argue otherwise that was a disappointing result um azerbaijan he finished 15th he had the opportunity to win that race or at least take a podium he yeah. made a he made a driver error I, I don't think that's a reflection of the car or the setup of the team. That was a driver error, and he owned it. And if you look at Bottas, you know he he scored a podium in Bahrain. He 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 had a retirement in Italy, but ultimately that wasn't his fault. Um, I still am strongly of the mind that that was a George Russell issue, where George Russell collected him and took him in the wall um, and ended his race. Yeah. He finished third in Portugal. He finished third in Spain. Uh, he retired in Monaco I, again. Regardless of what Total Wolf said about the finish, the fact that he didn't fin- he didn't land on his marks when he came into the box, I, I don't attribute any of that DNF to him. And then he had a really poor Azerbaijan, and, and part of that could have been set up, part of that could have been pace, whatever. They, they've still had some good results, and I think if I'm Red Bull, I look at this a different way. Like, you know what? He could have podiumed in Italy. 
He could have had a podium in Monaco. He had a bad race in Azerbaijan. Lewis had a bad race in Monaco. He had a good race in Azerbaijan, except for one error. Really, they're in a position where if things had broken a little bit differently, both of their drivers would have scored a podium in every race but one each. Like The results could be a little bit different. So I think they're being conservative because they know that the results could change very quickly. That said, and I don't want to be criticized for being a Red Bull homer because I'm definitely not a Red Bull fan, but they just seem to have everything, everything clicking right now. Mm -hmm. Set up their arrow seems to be dialed in. Uh, the bendy wing, whether it's illegal or not, is certainly helping. Everything just seems to be clicking. The chemistry between the two drivers seems to be great. And yep. you know, Sergio had said it before the season that it was probably going to take him five races to get comfortable with the car. You know, five races into the season, he'd already had four top five finishes, and then in sixth race, he wins a he wins a Grand Prix. So I feel like things are clicking for them. But what will make this race exciting on Sunday isn't the track; it's going to be the dynamic between the four drivers and the two teams in the uh, the championships. Yeah, you know, just to to to, to finally uh, finish off uh, this whole thought here that uh, Total Wolf also just said in the, the, the past couple of days that despite the, the struggles that they had in Monaco and, uh, and Azerbaijan, that this does not alter their, their their plans for the development of the 2022 car. I mean, they're focused on that. And I mean, why would they? I mean, that is the ultimate... Uh, uh, you know, goal. I mean, this is this weird kind of in-between season that was kind of forced upon us uh, because of the pandemic and everything like that, and the way that they basically carried over the uh, the, the cars from 2019 into 2020 and now into 21 with some, you know, some, some subtle changes uh, here and there. But I mean, the cars are by and large the same that they've been for the past couple of years. And I mean, th this, uh, this next uh, year is going to be completely different. I mean, why would you take your focus off this completely new uh, generation of cars that we've uh, that we've seen to basically sink you know your resources and time and money into a car that's only going to be used for another 15 races or whatever it is said that we have left in the in the season i mean it's obviously going to be concerning it's going to be frustrating i mean it kind of comes back to where we started at the you know the the, the top of the show here just uh, talking about the, the the fact that they don't have uh, the DAS system installed on the car this year which is uh, obviously having a bit of a detrimental effect uh, effect on on what Mercedes is able to do, but yeah, I mean, two bad weekends. Why would you disrupt the bigger picture just to, uh, you know, throw people and time and money at, at, at that, uh, you know, at this current car? Yeah, cool. That's all I got on that. That's I all you got. That wrap this up here, shortly, sure. But I wanted to make sure I gave a shout out to Mr. Vincenzo Landino. He uh, set up a Twitter Spaces chat on Friday afternoon. I was late because I didn't. Uh, didn't correct for the three hour time difference. But <laughs> it's another great chat. So we you know, we'd hosted one just as a test last week, uh, a Twitter spaces chat. It was fantastic. Uh, the chat that Vincenzo uh, hosted and moderated was uh, probably even better. Well, it was much, much better. Um, and we'll continue to try to do those kind of things to, uh, to uh, involve the community. But the one thing I would say, and I know you kind of commented this offline is that the fear is always that the audience gets smarter than us. And <laughs> we're already beyond that point, my friend. We're beyond that beyond point. the point of no return. But uh, yeah, it, it's awesome. I mean, especially to to hear from fans uh, old and new, and especially the, uh, the 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 new fans that are coming in. Just how quickly uh, people are are picking things up. It's uh, it, it's really really cool to see. And uh, most importantly, that the the one thing that's really really cool to hear from people that are either brand new fans or 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 existing fans or fans that have come back that 
everybody seems to enjoy it and the one cool thing is that we see uh, we see around here is like the the, the continuing and growing sense of uh, community which is which is a lot of fun i mean uh, it's like we say uh, you know quite often that uh, the the whole reason we do what uh, what we what we do here is because we love it and we love to talk about formula 1 and we like to uh, you know connect with other formula 1 fans to talk about it uh, and it's cool it's awesome I'm looking forward to doing it again uh, not just tonight but thursday and uh, sunday night and then monday tuesday next thursday a lot of shows coming up let's uh, just put it that way but uh, i'm not complaining we love what we do and it's a lot of fun and on that note on behalf of myself and my friend and co-host mr mark hamilton thank you guys for uh, checking in uh well, be it on the uh, the you know, i was gonna say twitter live stream i mean uh, you know what's wrong with me with the youtube live stream or via the podcast thank you all one and all for downloading and listening or watching uh, on youtube take care we'll be back in a couple of days and until then Thank God Monday's behind us. That's all I got to say. And on that note, uh, take care. Talk again soon. Bye for now.